So here we go. Thank you, Maria. This is, yeah, he's got to thank you. That's good kid stuff. Hey, hey, welcome to the podcast where we take a quick swig of medicine from the limitless depths of pop fiction, literary fiction, visual art, music, movies, poetry, any artistic creation, and we feel all the better for it. My name is Nate Hammond. You are listening to Tonic Pop. Tonic Pop and we're rolling and we're welcoming to the home studio, welcome to our home, Felix Long, author. Welcome Felix. Thank you very much Nate, I'm very pleased to be here. We've spoken before and so, and that was enough to really excite me about what you do and what you were doing, what's to come. Um, past, present and future, everything about what, you're, um, what you create is really exciting to me. I want to ask you this question right off the bat, why? Why are you an artist? Well, Nate, that is the simplest question to ask and the hardest to answer. Why am I an artist? Why am I an author? Why am I a poet? Why am I a painter? And luckily for me, I had a small epiphany and I realised that I had read a passage in a book at the age of nine, a wonderful book that hopefully all of you have read, The BFG by Roald Dahl. And there was a certain passage in this book where I really had a bit of a moment when I read it. I thought Roald Dahl had reached into my own mind and stolen one of my dreams and put it into a book. Here it is. Just reading from page 100 of the BFG. I has written a book and it is so exciting nobody can put it down. As soon as you has read the first line, you is so hooked on it you cannot stop until the last page. In all the cities, people is walking in the streets, bumping into each other because their faces is buried in my book. And dentist is reading it and trying to fill teeth at the same time. But nobody minds because they are all reading it too in the dentist's chair. Drivers is reading it while driving and cars is crashing all over the country. (laughs) Brain surgeons is reading it while they is operating on brains. And airline pilots is reading it and going to Timbuktu instead of London. Football players is reading it on the field because they can't put it down. And so is Olympic runners while they is running. Everybody has to see what is going to happen next in my book. And when I wake up, I is still tingling with excitement at being the greatest writer in the world. Until my mummy comes in and says, I was looking at your English exercise book last night and really your spelling is atrocious and so is your punctuation. (laughs) What book has had that effect on you? There you go. So many books in my childhood have had that effect on me. But to be the best author in the world, to write something so exciting, so engaged, and everybody loves it. Right. It is indeed a holy grail. It is an unachievable quest, but there's no reason not to try. So just going back to questions about books that have really affected me growing up, Mm -hmm. I think the finest example of a book that had so many more layers on top of it as an adult reader, returning to a book that I loved as a child, would be Robin Klein's Hating Alice and Ashley. Okay, great. What a fantastic book that is. Mm. And I have to say that I really identified with the main character. 12 years old, utterly neurotic. And the main character <laughs> is not Alison for those who have not read That's it. That's right. It's Erica Yerkin. Erica Yerkin. Erica Yerkin is a wonderful slice of Australiana. Mm. And Australiana in the 80s as well. There's plenty of aspiration and there's a certain amount of cringe. Right. Being 12 years old and... Just feeling so out of place, being born in the wrong place in the wrong time. Is it reality cringe? Like, that's because, um, I mean, there's, there's cliche cringe. And I find that a lot of Australian literature and Australian movies, like The Castle or whatever, they, you know, there are tropes and there are 
and there are stereotypes, but Australians seem to be very real in the way they create these their indie flicks or their indie books, if you want to call it that sort of thing. And I think Hating Alice and Ashley falls into that. Uh, I, I found it one to avoid the the uh, old cliches of, of groups of people that represent, mm, how should I put it, that are labelled. So, you know, you've got your yes. goths over here, your rusters over here. Your, do you know what I mean? Exactly and, and, that. Every single character is a well-rounded yes. and unique character. Yep. I even loved Lenny the truck driver, 24 pl- gold-plated 24-carat right. yeah, truck yeah. driver. He was such a wonderful character. He only got about 12 lines, mm. but he was just such a lovely, lovely person. And that's one thing I love about reading a really well-rounded book is that every single person, even if every single character in the book is their own main character. Right. So they may have a walk-on part in somebody else's story but they exist outside that world. So I want to come back to um, Alison Ashley in a moment, just to vamp on that point a little bit when you're talking about characters. Mm. When you create your characters, I'll name drop a couple of books now. So you've got To Conquer Heaven, you've got Habnab coming out as well, and you've got all your short stories from um, Sofrasini. And well I'm done. pronouncing that right? Yes. Sofrasini <laughs> rhymes with Hermione. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sofrasini rhymes with Hermione, people. When you're creating characters for your stories and for your books... Do you, do you feel like they're based on personal relationships or are they composites of experiences that you've had and you've pulled them in to create one character? How do you design your characters? Now, that is a very interesting question. I'm going to have to do a little reveal here. Uh-oh. I'm a gamer. All right. Okay. We're talking about D&D. I should have picked that. Yep. There you go. <laughs> so one of the wonderful things in D&D is... So tabletop gaming. Tabletop no, yeah, gaming, right. that's okay. right. And not just D&D, I started... D&D was like the gateway drug for me, and I just mm. kept going. Alrighty. Shouldn't there be a board or some pieces or something to Jenga? No, no. This is a role-playing game. It takes place entirely in our collective imagination. Ooh, Ooh yeah. Neil. I tell the story, and you make choices in the story. Okay? Let's begin. The nature of a character is that with D&D, you start with numbers. What is yep. this character good at? Are they strong? Are they pretty? Are they um, persuasive? What's the sort of main defining characteristic of this character? Right. So then you build from characteristics up to personality. In different gaming genres, you can start with personality and then go backward to characteristics. But I found that it was a really good thing to do to build characters in a gaming scenario so that you didn't end up with what is referred to often as a Mary Sue. A Mary Sue character is someone who is good at everything. Okay. So they are the... I can't really think of a really good example of a Mary Sue character... Uh, except I've been th- thinking about writing one for a while. Right. Um, but a Mary Sue character is um, basically a walking plot device. Don't worry, the Mary Sue character is just dropped in and will solve the problem. It's, um, it's a lazy trope. So I love characters to have flaws. And when you're... Um, yeah, vulnerability. You exactly know. Yep. that. And things that they suck at. Hmm. Like um, I've always loved tragic heroes. And tragic in the Greek sense that they bring about their own demise by their right. inability to overcome their shortcomings. An example here would be um, The Mandalorian, the recent okay. uh, Star Wars series released. That's funny. When you talked about vulnerability in characters, I don't know why, but immediately I went to the Death Star and, and thought of that one little tiny little, oh. vul- you know, as, as mega... Evacuate as, in yeah. our hour of triumph. <laughs> Until this battle station is fully operational, we are vulnerable. If the rebels have obtained a complete technical readout of this station, it is possible, however unlikely, that they might find a weakness and exploit it. We've analysed their attack, sir, and there is a danger. 
Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. So yeah, so Mandalorian, yes. So yeah. the Mandalorian. The main character had to get over his hatred of droids. Okay. That was the whole start to end. That right. was his character journey. He had to overcome his own flaw. And except that flaw was uh, without getting giving away too many spoilers for those who haven't seen it, it was a very deeply ingrained flaw. He had lost his parents as a result of uh, an imperial droid attack, okay. so he hated them. But he had to learn to place his faith in something that he hated, mm. and so that was his turning point. And I think a character themselves has to be an interesting person with an interesting flaw, maybe several flaws, and. Their journey may involve getting around that flaw or resolving that flaw in some way. Okay. So one of the things I did with To Conquer Heaven was I started with characters and I made, like, this person is really good at athletics, for example. This person knows a lot about this particular subject. And when you're generating characters in uh, a role-playing framework, you have X number of, of um, points to go around. So you can't overdo a character. Yeah, okay. Now, sometimes you can get extra characters, uh, extra character points by adding more flaws. So somebody could be an absolute brain box, but be a dreadful asthmatic. Right. So that trade-off does provide a wonderful rounded uh, character. And you might just want to have a moment where the world depends on a fat guy running for a bus. Hmm. So a big dude, is, he's got to get that bus. And it, the world depends on whether or not he can actually make it. And whether or not the bus driver is a kind person and will actually slow down that bus. Right. It could be just getting over your own personal flaw, whether it's a physical flaw or a mental flaw or an emotional flaw. I love to see a moment where the world's fate hangs on somebody doing the thing that they suck at. It could, it, yeah, without it, you know, there's no tension created. There's an assumption that it's a given. It's They're going to save the world. It's, it's Bruce Lee, whatever. He can yeah. beat anyone, you know what I mean? And like... Superman. I don't know. Boring. Why I went to, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Superman um, has a until weakness. They, until they, you know, found his flaws or, you know, created the flaws. But, I mean, in the, uh, speaking of superheroes, I found that with Captain Marvel, um, you know, a lot of people, why don't she just fly in and save the day? She's yeah, pretty damn powerful. that was a bit powerful. disappointing. Yeah. That was a little bit disappointing. But, you know, they, so they had to create a story. It, rather than giving her flaws, like, you know, it was about her being away and taking care of other parts of the universe. Yeah. So, um, so, but it was also about getting up. It's yeah. not about how often you fall. Yeah. It's about how often you get up. And that was, I think, the defining, the, the character beat. Right. The defining moment of the character. Right. Just going back to what defined one of my characters, one of my central characters, I watched a fantastic National Geographic um, documentary. Yep. And it was about the tomb of the first emperor. Good. Okay. We're going to go there. Good. Yes. I want to know about that. To Conquer Heaven is um, based on a real legend. Mm. As in, it is a legend that is at least 2,000 years old and it has historical record. There is a very large section of the archaeological community that is searching for the lost tomb of the first emperor. Why are they searching for it? Oh, because I really wish I brought the, the quote with me, right. but uh, there is only one page devoted to it, okay. and it is Sima Tien, the Annals of the Historian. This was written about 100 years after um, the first emperor of China died so just to go back a little bit about the first emperor of china his backstory is almost identical to that of vlad tepish right those of you uh listening may know who vlad tepish is 
Vlad the Impaler. Oh, Vlad the Impaler. Well, Vlad that's what I immediately thought. I didn't know his last name was. Yes, so Vlad the Impaler. Temish, did you say? Tepish. Tepish, sorry. So okay. he was Vlad Tepish, and he was the uh, yeah, inspiration Vlad the Impaler for... is, is much more ominous. <laughs> oh, yeah, much more <laughs> ominous. He was the um, original inspiration for Dracula. Excuse me, do you know the best way to the airport? Yes, fellow Dracula, there's only one way, blah, blah, blah. But it's all blocked. We'll never make it in time. You should have left an hour earlier. Blah, blah, blah. I do not say blah, blah, blah. Vlad Tepish, he was, his father was up against the Ottoman Empire. And very Game of Thrones, the scenario at the end is when you've had a battle and you're drawing the peace terms, mm-hmm. you often swap children. And this is called the wardship in like European um, medieval times. This was called wardship, as in I will take a prince from your household. Yep. Take him into my household. You will have a daughter from my household. Yep. And we will raise them in our courts and they'll be friends all together. Yep. Eventually we'll probably yeah. marry them off. You know, it was, but in a practical sense, if you break our peace treaty, peace treaty I'm going to kill your son because he's right here with me. Right. So it was the insurance. Okay. So Vlad Tepish was traded as a hostage, ward, whatever you want to call it. Right. And instead of obeying the, um, the conventions of the day, which was to treat the boy well, and effectively raise him as one of your own children. Yes. He was put into the stables. He was beaten daily for sport. He was treated very, very badly. Right. By the Ottoman Empire. Empire, yep. And young Vlad Tepish, being brutalised by many years of dreadful treatment, eventually escaped, went home, got himself a force, came back for revenge. Right. This is an almost identical backstory to um, yep. Qin Shi Huang was the first Chinese emperor. 2,000 years ago, China did not have a name known to foreigners until the first dynasty of imperial China, Qin. The first emperor of Qin, or Qin Shi Huang, led the first general unification of the country's warring states into a single entity. China was originally six neighboring countries. And if I had my book with me, I could tell you what they were. (laughs) (laughs) So... Qin Shi Huang, he was traded as a hostage as a child. He was treated very badly, beaten daily for sport, went back, raised himself an army, and he conquered six nations. He murdered entire civilian populaces. He was such an evil man. Now, conscience does catch up with you. And after he had founded China, he became obsessed with discovering the elixir of life. Now, the elixir of life is something that is even more ancient in Chinese mythology. Uh, those of us who remember Monkey. Yes. King Monkey. Yes. Hail King Monkey 10,000 years. We'll remember that uh, King Monkey stole it in a game of Go from Lao Tzu, who's one of the ancient Chinese um, mythological deities. Anyway, I love Chinese history. Okay. <laughs> so in reality, this historical person, the first emperor of China, was a bloodthirsty maniac Mm -hmm. who was terrified of his comeuppance in the afterlife right so he was after the elixir of life he also is this elixir something that they considered to be a from a natural source or created you know yes alchemy like or alchemy okay you've got it it was considered to be a pill okay but there was also an element that it was like a a quest and a quest where you could internally transform yourself and become immortal Mm. okay we could go down that no. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on how much time you've got. But um, this National Geographic document, the documentary that I watched, had yes. this narrator who was the most gorgeous creature. She was French Chinese and she was reading 
this passage from Sima Chen. Okay. Sima Chen was the historian who wrote about right. the tomb. Okay. They burrowed down to the third level in a mighty mountain, hollowing out the area for the tomb. Inside the tomb, they fashioned glorious palaces that mimicked those above the ground. Wow. They brought many valuable objects to the tomb. Can you give us an idea of the scope of this? Is it how, how big, how big wide, is it? tall, deep? It is a massive subterranean tomb. Right. Ceilings, the heavens above were, were cast in gems above. Wow. Uh, in in the, the ceiling cavity above. And they fashioned rivers of mercury such that they flowed. And that detail just stuck in my mind. They fashioned rivers of mercury such that they flowed. Wow. How would they have? So I came up with a solution. Okay. Anyway, this beautiful, gorgeous Lacroix wearing <laughs> archaeologist looks at, she breaks the fourth wall mm-hmm. and says, this sounds so exciting. And I became fascinated with the idea that this lovely posh lady who drinks tea couldn't just wait to throw <laughs> off the pearls in Lacroix and grab herself a fedora and a whip and get off down right. and find the, the lost tomb of the first emperor of China. Very, very Harrison Ford. Yes. <laughs> so she was one of my main characters. I hope I'll find her one day because she's a real person. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a, a juxtaposition between her, her uh, I guess, on stage persona, if you want to call it that, or on screen persona. And then, as you said, you know, whipping off, she whips off the, the attire to put on this, you know, archaeology yes. cloak and, and get in the dirt. When you fashion your characters, because that's where we started the conversation, mm. um, you've talked about how multidimensional they are. You look for the vulnerabilities when you create them and those sorts of things. Do you see something similar? Like, is she someone that you imagine as one of your characters? She became um, the... She's not, not the... Ma- it is basically a buddy story. Yeah. It's yeah. about two guys who go off to find... Right, right. ...the, the ancient tomb of okay. the, first, uh, the first emperor of China. Yeah. Uh, but she is Sophia Halcyon. Sophia Halcyon is the um, archaeologist who... Yeah. Okay. Um, doesn't so much help them along. She certainly helps them out. Right. So this is um, a story of four characters fall into a tomb. Now, how do they get out? So is she someone that you've called her Halcyon, her her last name? Is that as in, does she bring sort of some sort of grounding or peace to the, is that, have you spelt it H-A-L-Y-C-O-N? You know you're Greek. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Not as much as you, I can't compete. Um, but is that is that where is there something to the name that yes. denotes what she is as a character? Halcyon actually means um, kingfisher. Hmm. So really, I just picked it because I like the name and it fit the um, yep. uh, the ethnicity of the character as well. And Sophia yeah, right. also uh, okay. means wisdom. Yes, okay. what a beautiful name. Okay, I always knew it as a is a, a um, also is that does a Halcyon denote peace like um, when it flies over the waters or something it's supposed to bring peace to the waters mm. that's what I maybe I'll have to look it up to be sure oh, Halcyon is also uh, golden lit okay those Halcyon days people often speak of their own uh, power years or yes. happiest days as their Halcyon days mm. okay great okay so you've you've got your characters now how do you then craft the story you said you, you it was catalyzed by seeing this um, this wonderful this documentary documentary yes. how do you go from it from um it being catalyzed by seeing something picturing something do you go on some sort of pilgrimage after that some sort of literary pilgrimage or do you um even if it's just mental or how do you then craft it into a story how do well, you 
This is probably the worst. Actually, story actually, before ever. you ask, answer that, I've got to know this. This is a practical question. Do you prefer pen to paper, or do you prefer typing um, when you write? Oh gosh, I have found um, notebooks from years ago that I can't read. My okay. handwriting right. is okay. that okay. bad. I do very much prefer um, typing. Okay, I just so wanted to imagine faster. in my head, um, yes. not imagine the wrong thing. So yes, yeah, so then how do you craft? the story after it's been catalyzed by viewing something or seeing something? Well, I'm reminded of Albert Einstein's statement that uh, hard work is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. I had my 1%. My 1% was an epiphany Mm -hmm. that happened in the baking aisle of Woolworths. Okay. This sounds so ridiculous, I know. Well, are you still speaking about um, To Conquer Heaven? Or that's you... right. Okay, okay. So All To right. Conquer Heaven, uh, I'd seen this magnificent documentary and I talked it through with my husband and, wow, isn't this wonderful? I mean, nobody really knows where this tomb is, but people are convinced that it exists. Oh, but you, that wasn't the spark to... That wasn't that the was spark. Just sort it of took a little the... bit longer. Ah, okay. And then I was in the baking aisle in right. front of the sugar for no good reason. Right. And it suddenly hit me. Oh, I know how they made rivers of mercury flow. Bingo. Okay. Once I worked that out, the whole story pretty much cemented in my mind, or at least the boss fight at the end certainly did. Okay. And if anybody out there is wrestling with a story, an idea that they want to twirl out of their head and put onto a page, I recommend this. Write the end first. Okay. So once you've written the, the, like the main scene that you're working toward, then everything falls into place. Just as when you are driving at night, you've got your headlights on, you can only see so far ahead. Right. But you know your where the destination is. Okay. That's some good advice. Uh, that's not one I've heard before. I was going to ask you, maybe save it till later, but it's perfect segue. Uh, a lot of people, someone will be listening to this going, I want to be a writer. And the obvious answer to how to become a writer is write. But how do you become a better writer? Uh. And are you still, like you would admit that you're still on that journey, always trying to be better and oh, improve? Yes. To be as good. As that dream from the BFG. Right, exactly. Yes. yes. <laughs> to be the most awesome writer in the world. Yep, yep. Um, keep going. Unfortunately, the uh, advice is boring. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, you do need an inspiration. You do need to have those critical plot points. You do need to have well-rounded characters. But you also need to have your bum in the chair. Hmm. You need to set aside time. And you need to zealously guard it. Because the hardest thing I find with writing is not getting started, but keeping going. So setting yourself... I'm a, a cafe writer, actually. This is one of the hardest things that COVID has thrown at me, okay. is lack of cafes. Being able to sit for an hour in the morning before starting my day job and same time, same place really does work. The whole setting up a routine, sticking with it. Mm. Even if you just sit there typing the cat sat on the mat. Yeah. That was um, Maya Angelou's technique. If she okay. was ever having trouble getting started, she would just... Type something repetitive. Cats it on the mat. Cats, cats on the mat until something on the mat. evolved. Right. Okay. Yeah. For, for me, it's the Jabberwock. Right. I just type out the the words of the Jabberwock until right. here, it, okay. here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. Okay, okay. Yeah, so that really works. Um, same so time, do you believe place. in writer's block? So no such thing? Oh, no. I think writer's block is uh, a thing, but I, I think we visualize it as a block, like a, you know, mm. a you know, cube of granite when it's actually gelatinous cube. There you okay. go, D&D reference. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and it will swallow you up if you, you know, it's, it's, it's a slow-moving um, nemesis that can come after mm. you. If you do stop for too long, it will grab you. Okay. Um, but there's nothing wrong with parking something and picking something else up. Yep. If something's not working for you, then 
blow it up and start again. Right. And I think some of the hardest things to do... Do, do you recommend blowing it up and starting again? Or Ooh, actually, shoving it into a safe and carrying on? Stephen King is one of the best dispensers of writing advice. And okay. those of you out there who are thinking about being writers, please go and find this book. Stephen King's On Writing. Okay. It is probably his least selling book, but it is filled with... It's, it's the keys to the storehouse. It's the keys to, right. um, to success. Even if you don't like his work personally, he knows how to churn them out. Mm. One of the things he said in this book was it really is a matter of just keeping going. But he had his book, one of his most famous books is The Stand. Yep. He got stuck, writer's block, first time in his life, really, really, really badly at a certain point. And then he decided that all of his characters had failed their quest they had been given a brand new world to start again and then they had fallen into their own their own patterns to start they had made the same mistakes and formed an imperfect society right so he blew them up he literally put a bomb into it okay yeah yeah and that got him going again so once he worked out what the problem was that all of his characters had failed their quest then he threw something enormous at them to see what happened next so even the right. finest of writers do suffer from writer's block and sometimes you've got to do something dramatic. Because keep in mind, people, these are imaginary people. Yes, they're made of real yeah, parts right. of other people. You don't have to feel too sorry you for them. You don't have to feel too okay. sorry for them. You don't. Yep. What were you hoping they were going to do? Right. And it's <laughs> fiction, so you can always do prequels. That's true. Yeah, you can always bring them back to life in some other way. Superman if... came back to life. Come on. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> but, um, it was, that's interesting because we're talking about a common friend in, in Ged Mayberry. Um, yes. Hi, and, Ged. Hey, Ged, if you're listening. You should be. You better be. I'm going to tell you to. I'm going to tag you <laughs> in the post, so you should. And, um, and he was telling me how he was getting to that point where, I don't know if you'd call it a writer's block, but it was definitely a, a, a wall or his, the story was being damned. And then... Suddenly, this old guy walks into his life, um, into his mind anyway. But he was saying, he's not part of the story. He's never been there. I never imagined him. I didn't, ex you know, that sort of thing. He was, he's not supposed to be there. And so he had a choice. Get rid of him or allow him to just come in and work his way into the group, um, you know, the characters, the character group that had already been formed. And so he allowed the guy to walk in there. I'm talking, of course, from imagination for those that are a little bit too <laughs> literal <laughs> that are listening. And, um, and, and the story was able to progress because of one additional character that came in and was able to act as some sort of guide and help him through the back door and that sort of thing. I was going to ask you if you have any writing quirks. You talk about writing the Jabberwock to get through uh, any writer's block or perceived right. or anticipated writer's block. Do you have any other quirks? I have little objects. I've got to say there are some things that um, you can invest some of your own energies, I suppose, without sounding too hippie about the whole thing. But sometimes I find um, a certain stone or a certain small... Uh, I have a writing cat, actually. <laughs> it's not a physical cat, unfortunately. Okay. I, can't, I can't keep animals because of allergies. Uh, but, um, same, with, same with Maria. That's why she sits out, out in the front oh. door. <laughs> but I do have... Um, a little writing cat. That's not Maria sitting outside the front door for those no, no, that are listening. No, no, the cat. <laughs> the lovely Wait, cat, the watch the, cat. <laughs> the, the watch. She found us actually. She came emaciated and scrawny the first day oh. we moved in. And Maria said, don't feed it, it'll stay. And so I fed it. Yeah. Anyway. What's, what's her name? Uh, Jet. 
Jet. Just, as in jet black. Very boring, but she's a jet black oh, cat. No, so no. I went, this yeah. cat is far from boring. She is jet yeah. black with green eyes. There, there yeah. was never a better oh, witch's familiar than yes, this cat. Right, right. <laughs> she's gorgeous, beautiful, loves humans. She'll, yes. You come and visit us, she'll she'll come and say hello. Yes, indeed. Um, yes, but so, yep, you have a little cat. Oh, yes, cat. yes. Yeah. I have a little cat. Uh, it's a little China cat. I have no idea where this thing came from. It could be a thousand years old. I really don't know. Like a porcelain um, cat? Or it's what a little porcelain talking? cat. Okay. It's a beautiful little thing. And I just love the feel of the coolness underneath my hand. Okay. And I don't know whether you can just find the brain state when you're holding a familiar object. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so, again, those are crutches. You know, you don't want to use a crutch too often. You'll, you will become mm. hobbled. But there are certain things that unblock. And probably the best thing to do is just go for a walk. The, another really good tip is... This is one from the oatmeal. The oatmeal is one of the best artistic... Um, talking about the website? Oatmeal? Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about the website, but what is it? He's an entrepreneur. Yeah. So he's the finest example of being an artist and running a business and actually uh, doing both at yeah, the same time, oatmeal. producing yeah, yeah. wonderful art and actually um, monetizing it. Mm. He's a really fantastic person. And he did a wonderful piece about... Um, Oh my goodness, he, he did a piece about, uh, he wanted to do 10 things I learned while running this blog. Okay, right. Because he's been doing it for 10 years. I have not years. read that one, I've got to yeah. check that one out. He's yeah. been doing it for 10 years, and right. he said, all right, 10 things I've learned, and he could only come up with eight. <laughs> and I thought that was the most fantastic example of just how creativity sets yep. its own rules. Right. Um, but he is a great example of um, chasing the muse, finding your own time, carving your time out and defending that time. And I know that uh, is, certainly for those of us who are parents, it's very hard to defend that time because there are so many other things you should be getting on with. Right, of course. Yes, but just going back to what Ged was saying about a character that just introduced themselves right at the end. I had exactly mm. that experience when writing Habnab. And I've had a huge boost with Habnab. Habnab is my third book, actually, and I'm looking mm -hmm. for representation at the moment. But I had a wonderful boost. Recently on Disney+, Plus. Artemis Fowl has been released. Yes. It was now, supposed to come to theatres and then it just, I guess, it got pushed it, back mm. because of COVID and... Thankfully, Disney released it, yeah. Yes, yes, I'm very pleased to see that they've done a very good job with it. But okay. one thing I've found is very difficult with a book is to sum it up in a single sentence. Mm. And when you're pitching a book to um, agents and to publishers, they always want to hear the single The, single the elevator pitch, yeah. The elevator pitch, yeah. the, the catchphrase, mm. the tagline. That's it, the tagline. Right. And Habnab is Artemis Fowl for Adults. Okay. So I'm very, very lucky that Artemis Fowl has had a resurgence. Yes, okay. And people will actually be able to right, right, right. To hang their expectations, I think, quite accurately upon Habnap. Okay. We're up to, we've only just started Artemis. Well, no, actually, we started a while ago, but we've just started the second book. So Oh, it's hilarious, kids, isn't yeah. it? Because it's written in the 90s when the mm. internet is a thing that you go to for a cafe for. It's so cute. I'll just email that um, update to your headset. That sounds good. <laughs> Yeah, internet is spelled with a capital I. Well, just technology moves so fast that you're Doesn't you're right, and yeah. And I loved Artemis Fowl. I'm reading mm. it currently to my daughter, and it, again, well-rounded characters. But you can also see the one idea that sparked the whole thing: the lep recon. Yep. The leprechaun. So just yeah, yeah. So yeah. Had LEP some lower uh, elemental patrol. Thought it was a cool play on words, and he just and it just suddenly grew from there. Do you think that was the catalyst, Absolutely or do you know what? Yeah, yeah, right. I don't know it. Honest to goodness, if I can you meet you and Kofa, but I reckon we've just been sitting there. Lep recon. Hey, that's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, right. Yeah, LEP recon. Oh. oh, they're all police officers. Awesome. Oh, yeah, oh. Oh, love it. So you talked about you brought up Habnab. Yes. So let's go there. 
seen as it's it's been brought into the open. Um, you talked about what catalyzed uh, uh, to conquer heaven. You know, mm-hmm. seeing the documentary and then having a spark when you're in the supermarket staring at the sugar. Um, <laughs> what what did it for you for Habnab? Oh, what no. took it from wherever um, to your mind to paper? That's right. Now Habnab was again an epiphany. I was many years older. Mm-hmm. I had children. And I was being screened for postnatal depression, as most of us are here in Australia, which is a wonderful thing. Catch yes. it early. Yep. Um, the checklist I was being taken through was very, very common sense things. How are you feeling? How are you sleeping? On a scale of 1 to 10, how do you feel? Uh, how have you felt over the last seven days? So gauging people's um, emotional state, not just at that moment in mm. time, but uh, in terms of Spotting a decline. Can I ask how long ago was this? this oh, was this was 2003. For your last order? Yep. My first born. First born, okay. 2003. 2003. Okay. Oh, yes, my goodness. This book has taken a while to come to <laughs> fruition. <laughs> wow. But the, um, the moment that sparked this was I was taken through this checklist. It was a physical checklist on, checkboard, on, on a, um, a clipboard. Yep. And the nurse got to the end and said, well, you seem to be doing just fine. Anyway, here's some resources if you need them. And then there was a screen from outside. The lady threw, um, put the clipboard face down mm-hmm. and said, excuse me, I'll just be back in a minute. And I heard later that a little kid in the waiting room had fallen over and hit his head on something and there was blood everywhere. Okay. So, of course, nurses react as they do. And by the way, if there are any nurses listening, you are the superheroes of today. Champions. Yep. Yes, you are. Now, I wasn't really sure whether I was, at leave to le- I was allowed to go yet, so I picked up the checklist. Naughty, naughty, naughty flipped over the next page and the questions got worse. Mm. So if somebody had had cause... Had no, 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 and then, yeah. Yeah, then the questions got a little bit oh, further. Oh, yes, well, yeah. Do you feel that your child is strange? Do you feel that your child doesn't belong to you? Mm. Do you feel that someone is trying to take the child from you? Do you feel that the child is not yours or is an alien in some way? And these questions just got worse and worse and worse when they're looking for postpartum depression that could possibly become a psychosis. I read all the way through this checklist and I thought, oh my goodness, if you've got a changeling, you are doomed. Yeah. Oh. And it suddenly occurred to me right. that postnatal depression, these sensations of this child is not mine, marries beautifully with the legends yeah, that we the have legend of, of a changeling. That your Which child, would have been what century when do you think when that was? I think we've always had dominant. these stories. You've always had this, yeah. Okay. I think we've always had right. these stories, and I, in my uh, research, I don't want to be too controversial here, but but uh, there was a pioneer theologian called Martin Luther, mm-hmm. and Martin Luther um, he nailed his uh, declaration, declaration to the chair, yeah. to the door of a to church, of church. Declare, and he he broke from Rome basically, mm-hmm. but one of his fairly nasty pieces that he wrote was um, about changelings. Really? He wrote about changelings. He believed them to be real. Well, um, really? m- many people believe witches to be absolutely okay. real. Oh, yes. But he believed that changelings were real. He believed they were born, creatures born without souls. And he believed that was his justification for killing them. He genuinely believed that changelings were born without souls and they were very unlucky creatures. Hmm. Now, I got such a chills when I was reading his descriptions of changelings. He said he walked into a house where there was a changeling. If anything in the house went aught, the child would laugh. 
And I thought, hang on, doesn't that sound an awful lot like autism? Mm. That a child would have like, inappropriate emotional reactions and just be a bit odd? Right. So are we actually talking about a type of neurodiversity which was labelled as having right. a changeling? Being 2003, this was when the MMR jab story broke. Hmm. So certainly in Ireland, the legend of the changeling is very deeply embedded in many folklores. There are often stories of... Oh, it does have Irish origins. Very Irish, Oh, yes. okay. Yes. Oh, that's that's um, my new learning for the day. Well, it brings us back right. to Artemis Fowl. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so right. Artemis Fowl's yeah. story is about the people, and the mm-hmm. people are fairies. Yep. And in the world of Habnab, the fae are human-like but not human. Mm. They are akin to humans. Right. But they are separate, different, ancient, and um, forced into hiding. Okay. Now, the story of changelings, this is actually... Hiding in a separate world or hiding within... Hiding in a separate world. Okay. Yes. Tiananog, the home of the Fae. Okay. Just like um, uh, Norse mythology, Midgard is Earth, and um, Asgard mm-hmm. is where the, yep. the, the people, the Asgardians, yes. live. And they're a type of human yeah. in a way, but they're just a bit superpowered. Right. So I suppose they are, you know, sort of roughly analogous to Asgardians. Okay. The Fae um, don't have a lot of kids. Humans, ooh, they have a lot of kids. Hmm. So the legend of the changeling is also um, the cockold's tale. If um, a young lady had gone walking in the forest and just is pregnant for some reason, yes, the you could either get very, very upset about the whole thing or you could say, mm, kids are changeling. I think we better accept it and love it and, you know, look after it because otherwise um, the supernatural daddy might come calling. Okay. So it was a way to explain pregnancies that were unexplained right. as well. So there's, there's this sort of practical left hand okay. of, the, of the mythology. So changelings are born to humans and they're a bit weird. Again, I think there is the element of neurodiversity there. That's yes. the undertold half of the tale so in times of yore these creatures would be killed or they would be cast out who would make that decision who um unfortunately that was the church i mean martin luther himself is a fine example of it right so if you had a changeling and you were fond of it and you wanted to keep it you kept it hidden so the parent would could determine whether it was a changeling at least in their own mind Mm. they would they would have to if they were thought okay well this is a change i'm going to keep it hidden Yes. Um, were there assumptions made by the church outside of the parent's own knowledge? Like, could the parent be just ignorant to the idea that it was a changeling and just, oh, it's just a precious baby? So it's, or were there telltale signs? Oh, yes. I know there were telltale signs, but I'm trying there to get you to explain it further. T- there yeah, certainly what are. were some of those telltale signs? Well, I was given a fantastic book, and this book was um, Icelandic ancient tales. Okay. And many of these Icelandic fairy tales have wonderful parallels to the Grimm stories. Right. Many ways you can find a fairy. One of the most simple ones is they're afraid of iron. Okay. Now, this is going to sound a bit um, catch-22, but bladed iron. Okay. If you pointed a knife at something, this was like a very old um, drinking tale. Right. If you were in a feast and you thought someone at the table was a changeling, all you need to do was just carefully point your knife at them, and if they immediately stopped talking and looked at you... (laughs) Oh, <laughs> then oh. that was that was a dead giveaway. So there so were that's the drowning the witch all over again. No, yes. okay. Exactly. 
So it is very much the drowning of the witch. Uh, in the Monty Python sort of sense of the logic of it all. Yes, <laughs> the duck. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. She turned me into a newt. I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna have to edit better. in a clip from that now in, into this podcast. There are ways of telling whether she is a witch. Are there? Well, they tell us. They hurt. Tell me, what do you do with witches? And what do you burn apart from witches? More witches. Good. So, why do witches burn? Because they're made of wood. Good. <laughs> so, how do we tell whether she is made of wood? Build a bridge out of her. Ah, but can you not also make bridges out of stone? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. Uh, uh, does a wood sink in water? No, no. No, it floats. It floats! Throw her into the pond! <laughs> what also floats in water? Bread. Apples. Uh, very small rocks. Cider. A great gravy. Cherries. Mud. A churches. Churches. Lead. Lead. A duck. Exactly. So, logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore, a witch! A witch! We shall use my larger scales. Oh, that's hilarious. Mm, so, yes, the finding of changelings. Um, and I do believe that our representation in historical sense of a changeling is actually a representation of neurodiversity in society. Okay. Well, well we've come a long way and I'm glad we... <laughs> in glad a very we long have. circle. <laughs> I'm glad we understand, um, you know, uh, postnatal depression a little bit better. It's, thank goodness we do. Yes. And thank goodness, as he said, you put a shout out to the nurses. Thank goodness they're on top of it. Um, Yay, team. Yes. So what does your family think of your writing? Oh, it is very kindly suffered. Right. I have two daughters who are wonderful. Okay, so you're not a drummer. You sit there <laughs> quietly in the corner. <laughs> um, I am a process analyst in my, um, my real world. Um, and I have a husband who is a Is computer it the real world though, Felix? Is it? Is it, is is it, it really? <laughs> so yeah, process my, analyst. I'm a, I'm a process analyst and mm -hmm. I came from a linguistic background. Right. So uh, I approach computer programming um, from the opposite direction to the people who started computer programming, who were very maths-centric. Yes. I came from the languages side of things. And I married a man who was very maths-centric. Okay. And he loves Tolkien. He loves ancient tales. And so we are very much a wonderful couple in that respect. My daughters, I want them to be like John. I really do. Go out there okay. and earn some good money, become computer programmers or something like that. Don't be a writer. Please. But we say that to our kids about musicianship. Yeah, exactly. don't be a musician. Yeah. But unfortunately, I've I've managed to um, create the thing that I didn't want. You know, the, by making it taboo, I've made it um, attractive. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so my daughters do follow after me, despite my finest efforts to moderate their expectations mm. in terms of um, uh, success. But they write such wonderful things. They write such wonderful, engaging, uh, from their own perspective, insights into what it is to be a person of their age in this particular moment in time. Hmm. And I find that that's one of the magics of writing. It is 
a Harry Potter Horcrux. It is a part of yourself okay. that will exist outside your person after you die. It is a form of immortality. Speaking of Horcruxes, um, there is a quote, and I can't. I tried to find it, and I can't quite. So I'll just paraphrase. But it's along the lines of, you know, whenever a writer writes, they leave a piece of, they give a piece of themselves, and therefore they die a little. Um, mm. Do you feel like writing? exhausts you or excites you does it energize you or does it exhaust you i certainly found that i had difficulties holding conversations after a great piece you know yeah. if you've I, th- I imagine every artist gets this the crash hmm. um athletes get this olympic athletes yep train 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 they get to the end of it and then they have their moment in the arena. They succeed or they fail and then they crash. They give up such a lot of themselves that they have diffi- that they just have to stop. And I found the same after I finished com- every single one of my main pieces. There was a bit of a crash that happened. I'd given so much of my energies yes. to the story right. that I did feel depleted. But it's not a permanent thing. It does come back. Okay. And do you come back with a little bit of vigour or like new energy? I think you come back better. Yep. Okay. So just like exercise, you are damaging your body mm. in a controlled way. Yes. And you, you repair better. I think the same is true of mental muscle tone. Unfortunately, it's often yeah. at the expense of social skills. I find that writers are hermits. We get together once every 10 years and talk about caves. Talk about caves? <laughs> Let's see, um, what you're describing there with muscle, it's called the supercompensation curve in fitness, uh, where when you actually, when you, when you go to the gym, say you're picking up some weights, you're actually getting weaker in the moment. And it's in the recovery that, yes. you, that you come back to the level that you're at before, but then your muscle grows a little bit beyond. And as long as you continue to um, you know, work a program or continue to lift up, lift weights once you've recovered then you have this well super compensation curve you're overcompensating for your body is trying to it's telling itself now i don't want to go through that again let me make myself a little bit stronger and i wonder mm. if your mind does that as well you're, you're writing and probably the first time you ever write it's it, it's a real struggle i mean the first time you learn how to read it's a struggle the yes. first time you write it's a struggle the first time you do math the first time you do anything drive whatever uh so that's that's good to hear that you do bounce back and that it's not depleting um, ultimately or not you know, long-lasting. Yes. Uh, I mean, there are stories of authors that have been completely depleted and yes. never written again after one you know, masterpiece. Harper Lee. Harper Lee, for example. <laughs> yeah, so, so you've got much more to come. That's, that's good to hear. But oh, you were just, I've got books for days. Great, because you were talking about, though, your, your daughter's yes. writing. So they're... Obviously, a lot younger than you are, and are they much younger than when you first started writing? Oh, about the same age. I've got to say, the bite, okay. the the bug does bite at a certain time of life. Right. Okay. And so, I what th- was the first story you wrote? Can you remember it? Oh yes, I remember, and I remember I got an A minus, and the person next to got me, my dear friend, got an A plus, and I was so upset. Jeez. <laughs> it was a wonderful story about the theme was disappointment. Right. And we were about twelve. I think okay. altogether, we all had to write a story about disappointment—a moment, a personal moment, hmm. where you were disappointed. Now I had to lie a little bit because I was actually writing about the, the time when my brother came home from the hospital. Right. And I was five years old. Now I remember it's one of my first memories okay. of the car pulling up, 
and my mum gets out and she's got baby, my little baby brother mm-hmm. in her arms. Now, I was told by the neighbour that I was going to get a present. Huh. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Expectations are high. Expectation oh, crash. No. Oh, gosh. And then and, you got this little brother. And I got this little brother whom I love. Hello, Brian, if you're listening. But it was a wonderful moment to write about that at a ch- as a child, I w- you were promised a thing. How old were you again? Sorry, I... Five. Five, okay. So it's one of my first memories. Wow. I was told by a neighbour that mum and dad are coming back from the hospital and bringing you a present. Hmm. And they arrived and it was a baby. And I remember just bursting into tears and running off and being so upset and depressed and sad. Yeah. I thought there was, a, I don't know if you've ever watched Community, it's a TV show Community. Oh, there Community? A, yeah, yeah. There was an episode <laughs> we just them. saw the other night where it said uh, so she got an A, a minus and she never got an A minus before. And then, yeah. then they found out that it was just a teacher's way. It was invented by teachers to give to students that they knew deserved an A, but that they didn't like. So they'd give them a little minus just mm. as a, yeah, yeah. And, and or then, is it the spur to the horse? Is it the, oh, the spur? Oh, is it the spur to the yeah, horse? Yeah, yeah. Is it a deliberate markdown of someone right. who could do a bit better if they tried mm. a bit harder? That's a, that's a positive way to look at it. All of those teachers sitting out there, we're, you are rumbled. So that first story that you wrote, you think it, it had the right elements to be considered a good story? And what are the elements to a good story? No, I think my first story was really quite bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then what makes a good story? What makes a good story? A good problem. Okay. So what is the problem? The problem in the story that I just described was I'd been given an expectation. Oh, I love that answer. That's that good. had been undermined. Mm. That and the promise didn't live up to the actual uh, to the actual promise. Okay. But it was even better. So the whole idea I think is to find a good problem. What is the problem? How can it be solved? Who needs to solve it? Why is it a problem? And mm. it could be something as simple as where's my bus card? My most recent story that I've written is um, called The Maths Test. It's a bit of a dark story. The genesis for the story was, how scary can I make a maths test? Okay. <laughs> so that'll be out on my website soon. www.felixlong.co.uk So ladies and gentlemen, please check out my website, felixlong.co.uk. The maths test will be up shortly. A short story is just ran- more random than... Short story. I am really getting into the short story uh, media at the moment. Mm-hmm. And, folks, I've got to say, it's the hardest one. Right. Tell a story in 3,000 words. Okay. It's tough. Mm. Normally with a, a novel, you've got 90,000 to 120,000 w- yep. words to develop wonderful characters yep, and yep. find out what the problem is and solve it. Mm. Or not. Yep. Maybe you make the problem worse. Right. That can be wonderful. Let's um, talk about George Martin for a start. Yeah, okay. When did he solve a thing? No, he just chucks more misery into the fire, doesn't right, he? Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It just yep. gets worse and worse and worse. Huh. And yet he is always riding toward a resolution, even if there's an awful lot of chaos on the way. Mm. If you don't have a problem to solve, or maybe you have a problem to solve, but you haven't... Do, do you feel like you have to create a solution for that problem early in order to develop the story properly? That is a convention called Chekhov's Gun. Anton Chekhov was a very famous yes, Russian author, author and playwright. Yeah. And he wrote a, a rule, which was if someone gets shot in the third chapter, the gun has to be on the mantelpiece in the first chapter. Okay, yeah. Gotcha. Now, I refer yep. to that as herrings. Mm. Insert herrings, paint some red. Right. So when you have... This is, the, the oh, I think, the purpose of the second draft. Um, Neil Gaiman recently said, right. the whole purpose of the second draft is to make it look like you knew what you're doing all along. 
Chekhov's gun. So, okay, because I, I, I drive my Chekhov's wife gun. mad because I, I pick out Chekhov's guns early on in movies. Yes. And I'll say, like, oh, that's something. Why is that there? That shouldn't mm. be there. Like, there's no reason for that to be there. That means it's going to be utilised very early, like, soon. And, yeah, and it, I think it drives her mad. I'm not sure. But it does. She's, <laughs> she's nodding her head. So it does. But to be really, really... Um, Subverting tropes is another wonderful thing you can do as a writer, certainly okay. for advanced writers. So you can take a Chekhov's gun, you can stick it out there, and then you could turn it into a total red herring. Mm, okay. I remember uh, just recently I was watching a, an episode of Titans, and right. there was a scene in a bar, and there was a woman chopping up um, ice with two picks. And I yep. thought, oh man, someone's about to get stabbed. No, right. red herring. But it was just such a nicely done yeah, okay. inver- yep, yep. inversion of the expectation mm. that it really drew me in. So it just throws you off. The, it's that red herring, as you say. It throws you off the the scent of whatever. And usually it's utilised when there's going to be a nice a twist or something in the story or a great, you yes. know, it doesn't want to lead you yes, to I solving th- it too early, I think. Exactly right. I think... Um, or it's just artistic, yeah. Yeah, well, a really well-written piece is well-structured. Mm. But I don't think you can go from structure straight up because it's very stifling. Yep. Go with the story first and then you can, in later drafts, revise the elements and set the stage. Mm. Just going back to what Ged was saying about a character walking in in the third act yes, who never was there previously. You've got to mm. go... And it's such a nuisance when that happens because that happened with Habnad. I had a character walk in right, right at the end and she ended up being a crucial turning point character and part of another character's motivation to betray themselves, so to speak. This character walked in and I thought, Great. Now I'm going to have to completely redo the third draft because okay, I've got another so character. Okay, so it wasn't a character that had been referred to, not even, no, there's nothing, no indication that this character was going to come along and it just... And suddenly, bang, there she was. Bang, there she was, okay. And it's, that is indeed a certain type of magic. Right. Hmm. Good old Freddie Mercury. So, yeah, it's a kind of magic. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to right. have to edit that song in there now too. It's a kind of magic. It's a kind of magic. So um, <laughs> I'm gonna have some fun. I'm gonna have some fun with this one. There's, Good. There's a lot of name dropping and pop culture references. Absolutely. Which will be fun to do. So so, again, so I'm, I don't know if we've quite answered the question though. So we so you say you start. You need to have a problem. Yes. Right. But the solution to that problem, and I'm asking because I've seen the one thing that drives me mad is when I feel like I don't think they actually had a solution to that problem when they first started writing. They yes. may have had a problem. Uh, I'll try and th- um, lost. I don't know. If, did you see the series Lost? No, I'm I afraid I feel I'll, like you didn't. Yeah. You, you avoided that one. No, I avoided that one. I'm afraid. Okay, it was it was so. I felt it was really well done, but you saw the writers lose their way. So I feel yes. like they started with a great idea, but they didn't have, and there was a problem. They didn't nail the landing, but they didn't nail the landing because yeah. they didn't ever consider a solution to the problem, and so it ended up having to. They made it up, and and a lot of times like, you see people go like, "Oh no, how do we resolve this problem?" Oh, it was all a dream, or they go to one of those yeah. sort of tired old. Cliches, right? Tropes, yeah. There's obviously an an importance to discovering the solution fairly early, would you say? Or should it just come naturally and by the end, if it doesn't come naturally, what do you do? Yeah, that's a very good question. Sometimes I think that the nature of the problem is not necessarily to be resolved because some of the hardest problems to overcome in life Mm -hmm. are the eternal questions. Why are we here? Right. For example. Do we have to die? Some of these really big metaphysical questions don't have answers, but unpacking them and exploring them is what makes us human. Okay. What is the point? Hmm. This has to be one of the biggest questions that all artists ask themselves at one point in their career. 
what is the point? But the fact that there is a point, or at least that there is an expectation that there is a point, is the most human of all things. And thinking, even if there is no point, I'm going to proceed, I'm going to endure, hmm. that is very human. So sometimes I think the uh, big questions of the human condition can form the big problems in literature, but they can't always be solved. Perhaps they can be addressed, and maybe that can be in a very satisfactory way, or maybe even in a more questions raised than answered right. way. And those can be very satisfying too. Let's get light now, and I want to go back to, we were talking about an inspirational book. I love talking about, um, you know, I believe that art is the greatest motivator, the ultimate motivator. I really do. You know, it's music that pumps you up to go and lift some weights or go to the gym or go for a run or what have you. You know, it's a piece of poetry that, you know, inspires you to declare your love to your interest. Or to unblock your own. Or to unblock your own. Unblock your own. There we go. And you were speaking about a book from childhood? or mm-hmm. When did you first read Alice and Ashley, Hayden I Alice and Ashley? I would have to say I was about the same age as the main protagonist, which okay. is one of the reasons that I identified with it so deeply. Was it a forced read through school? Or no, did you just pick it up I out really of the library? Or got to say it was out of the library. I think mm-hmm. I emptied the library twice during my time in primary okay. school. I was it became required reading for a lot of Australian schools, I think maybe in the 90s, I want to say? I think it or? did, yes. and. Yeah. Mid-90s, Maria's not in her head. It was required reading for Maria. She remembers that. So, hmm. And quite rightly so. I really do love uh, the fact that in Australian schools, we do set Australian literature. My own daughter yeah. uh, is in year nine, or she, well, she was in year nine when she was assigned Jane Harper's The Dry okay. as, the, as the, the book that had to be reviewed. Fantastic choice. Bit of a shout out to Jane Harper. Really wonderful story, guys. I could not pick a better page turner. Just a little writing tip. I read in an interview with Jane Harper that when she was writing The Dry, what she did was she looked at her chapters and she chopped out the last two paragraphs. That's how she got her page turning effect. She oh. stopped it a little bit short of where she actually wanted to stop it. Okay. Isn't that an interesting twist? Yeah, wow. Yeah. So go and check out Jane Harper's The Dry. Right now we're talking about Hating Alison Alison Ashley. That came out in, I want to say, mid-80s. Yes. 85-ish, 86, Probably, something, yes, somewhere around there. In anticipation of this interview, because I knew that that was a book that you're going to bring up, I, um, I, I went back to it, and I didn't read the whole thing, but I reminded myself of it and just picked up a few paragraphs and you know read a few uh, little bits and pieces from it. It didn't feel too aged. I feel like it was still relevant, a lot of it. How do you feel about it and what... Because Again, written in 85, and so obviously some of the, the character design is around or some of the set pieces are around what was going on in that era. Mm. But so far as personalities go, do you feel much has changed with the, the teenagers? Could, could it be set in 2020, in a high school in 2020, do you think? Or is there too much has changed? Because you've got teenage daughters. Yes, I think... The labels would change. The labels would change, okay. Just thinking on Erica Yerkin, uh, right. she's described as neurotic. Mm-hmm. She's very intelligent. She's a fish out of water. Today, I think she would be described as neurodiverse. Okay. I think that she's a fantastic main character because she is so, she was written so appealingly and so fresh. She is very much a 12 year old girl. Mm. Um, oftentimes, I find when I'm reading um, an adult, author has written a child as a main protagonist it's a sort of stilted or idealized adult view of a child and children can be nasty little horrors they Mm. can be noble 
they can be lots of different things, but they really, they just don't think like adults do. And I often find that a child making a choice as a child is much more interesting than a child making an adult choice. Right. I think a really good example of that would be, going back to Roald Dahl, Danny Champion of the World. Yes, I love that book. Fantastic book. The writing of Danny as a child, who's about 10, I think. I loved the writing of the scene. Yes, memory about 10. He has to use the car to go and get his father, who has broken his leg in the wood. And I think that Roald Dahl wrote so beautifully the challenge of a child driving a car and the different levels of wrong that were involved in that book were just so beautifully done, as in the main character's father is a poacher. That's wrong. You shouldn't steal from people. Yep. But the fellow he's stealing from is a horrible swine of a pig of mm-hmm. a guy, and he is denying the local poor people access to his woods in order to hunt. So it's, it's a real rich-poor yep. divide. It's got so many levels of complexity in it, and there's just so many different elements of less wrong or more wrong that a child has to negotiate his way through so his father is in danger he has to go and help his father how can he do this and with a child's solution to the problem he thinks the car i can drive the car i've Mm. never driven outside the petrol station before Mm. but i'm gonna do it so in a a moment of childlike problem solution Mm -hmm. and bravery he gets himself a cushion or something to get himself up so he can and then he puts something on his feet so he can reach the pedals yep and he drives the car. And I thought that was just a magnificent description of a child solution to a problem. Hmm. And beautifully written. How did Robin Klein do it? Because she would have been about 50 when she wrote yes. Hating Alison Ashley. Her level of empathy, I think, with the children that she taught. Because she's very much... Oh, yeah. she was a school teacher. Yeah. That's right. So <laughs> I find also that um, when you're reading a story, we were talking about Chekhov's gun being a literary mm-hmm. device. Yep. Author's avatar. There is usually a character in a book that is the author's avatar. Sometimes they're the main character. Right. So it's the author presenting themselves in a fictionalised, wonderful sense. I often think that Bilbo Baggins was Tolkien's avatar. Because there was one element where, and this is when um, Frodo's got the ring. Yes. And he goes to visit Riverhaven. Right. And Bilbo is there. Yep. And Bilbo is saying, oh, I'll never finish my book. And I thought, oh, that's got to be, that's definitely an author moment. I'm sure that that, um, Tolkien wrote himself as Bilbo Baggins. As well as the point that the book that he was writing is literally the name of the book that we're reading. That's so, right. Very meta. Very, yeah. very meta, very self-referential. <laughs> yeah. But I think that um, Robin Klein wrote herself in as one of the teachers. I think she was the kindergarten teacher. Okay. So I'm sure that Erica Jurgen herself is a composite character made of lots of different 12-year-old girls that Klein had known throughout her t- teaching career. Mm-hmm. But she must have had some special connection with this child because... It was so fresh, it was so insightful, and yeah. it was so um, non-self-conscious. It's one thing I really loved about Erica Yerkin as a character. She definitely showed she didn't tell. There's a wonderful scene where she uh, is told that she's got this magnificent presentation of um, ballerinas and go and take that to the principal. And I was only two-thirds of the way through before he realised he had something very important to get on with. Right. <laughs> it was just... Yes, yeah, so she, she doesn't take offence to things that are obviously insults. Some things just completely miss a passerby. So Alice, it's called Hating Alice and Ashley, yes. right? So excite! I'll, I, want, I want you to excite people about going and reading it and finding it and rediscovering it again. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. So it's called Hating Alice and Ashley. You may have seen the movie starring Delta Goodrum. That's right. Uh, but we recommend going and reading the book first. Would you recommend reading the book first? Oh, I would very much. Uh, it's, 
It's such a well-written book and yeah. it's such I, – those of us who have just gone through Stranger Things, for example, it's mm-hmm. also a really good The 80s as it was. Yes. Because uh, I did think it was a really fresh slice of Australiana without being kitsch. Without right, being, yeah, yeah. And that's the and point I was real, trying to make before. It's like you can tell real. you can tell where and when it is set. But yeah. I was, yeah, just wondering – you're talking about labels. So – and now we're going on tangent from the question that I just asked you. But uh, you, can, you can see where it's set. You can feel where it's set. And it's okay because it's retro cool now, yeah. you know, Stranger Things and, and even It and, you know, other things that, you know, the Ooh. 80s are making a comeback. <laughs> but, um, uh, but people, the, the people remain the same even though the labels change. Would you agree or disagree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. I think one thing that was really wonderful about hating Alison Ashley, uh, Alison Ashley herself is a character. Mm-hmm. She is an object of great envy to the main character. And one of the great journeys of the book is from envy to kindness. How Erica largely gets over herself mm-hmm. and realises that Alison doesn't have it all. In fact, what Alison doesn't have is the very thing that Erica has and takes for granted. A wonderful, loving family. Yeah, right. Even though they're very quirky in their mm-hmm. own way and Erica's dreadfully embarrassed of them. Tons of cringe humour in that. Right. And genuine, authentic cringe humour. I mean, why do we tell dad jokes other than mm. to embarrass our children? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just our way of engaging with them. So she thought she had an enemy in or she tried to create an enemy of another person and realised that it was herself that she needed to overcome. That's right. Mm. And that person could be a friend if she just extended her hand. Yeah. That's a great lesson for all of us to take away, I yes. think. Right. So what's next? What's what's coming? You you are seeking representation for Habnab. That's right, and I've had a huge boost with the recent release of Artemis Fowl, which I hopefully will uh, pop culture me over that slush pile and find me representation and an author. Sorry, and uh, and a publisher. And a publisher. A publisher. But I'm never afraid to go again and self-publish because, folks, it's not as bad as people make out. In fact, what's the point of writing mm. a manuscript and leaving it in your drawer? Just going back to Ged Mabry. Yep. I helped him um, self-publish a couple of his manuscripts. Yep. And once I'd shown him the path, he went nuts of his own volition. Right. It was fantastic to see that all this um, work that he'd done that had sat in a drawer and was benefiting, benefiting nobody no one. Yep. was suddenly released into the wild. And I find that books are very much like that. Once you've told them, it is your duty to set them free into the wild. Hopefully they lodge in someone else's brain and stay there forever. Otherwise, we get another case of what happened with Harper Lee. We were talking about her before. Yeah. and uh, Sorry, I'm mind-blocking on what it was called. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird. To, no, yeah, well, no to, not To Kill a Mockingbird, the second one. The that, Set of Watchmen. Set of Watchmen, sorry, yeah. yes. And it was a, a deathbed release. And mm. yeah, like you, you were talking about, you either burn it or you either blow it up or you... Yeah, that's or, right. Or, or you release it, you know, sort of... Scenario. Going back to Stephen King, he did one thing that I absolutely... I almost died when I saw him do it. Misery. Mm, okay. Do you remember how it was? Yeah, yeah. It's very self-referential. The main yep. character is an author who's yeah. been captured yes. by a crazed fan, a crazed fan, who yep. makes him write a book. And what does he do? He sets fire to the manuscript. Mm. Oh, that to me was like murdering a baby. It was just oh, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dreadful. But don't destroy your your darlings. I mean, the saying is, kill your darlings. No, don't. No. Nope. It doesn't have to be perfect. Perfection is the enemy of progress. So to Who said that? See, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, yeah. Mm. To set a watchman, though, like the 
I feel like that was one that shouldn't have been released. Yeah. Do you feel like it should have been released? Like, yes and no. Sometimes a, I'm just not sure. Well, I mean, it's, it's a bit like Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Okay. I am the greatest. Yeah. But to remain the greatest, you've got to stop. Mm. You've got to remain undefeated. You've got to stop at the, at the zenith right. of your career. That's sort of part of the tragedy. But I think it's better. That's a good reference. Though. Like well, the Muhammad Ali is actually because he didn't go out on top. He actually no, continued he and back. he brought back and he lost a few fights to, mm. to his end days. Fortunately, though, he had created such a powerful impression while he was at, in his peak and in his prime and and in his self promoting prime as well. Mm. To be to be honest, that's half the reason he's the greatest is because of his self promotion. That's right. I have wrestled with an alligator. I don't tussle with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Bad dude. Bad. That's right. I mean, there's always going to be arguments, Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali in a ring who would win. But uh, maybe, and maybe, maybe that's how I can resolve that little bit of an issue which I have with one of my favourite books and, and authors in Harper Lee, um, feeling like to set a watchman, I started to read it and I just cramped up a little bit and I mm. couldn't, I couldn't do it. It just wasn't what I wanted from her and so yeah. to me it felt like, no, this shouldn't have been released but perhaps if I, you brought up Muhammad Ali and I think that's a good way to sort of settle it down for me is to realise that the, the main work that she put out, her, her magnum opus if you like or... Um, that is what remains as her legacy That's more than right. anything else. Everything else is sort of just gets, you know, washed over and, you know, hardly even seen. And no one, no one ever speaks about Harper Lee and To Set a Watchman. So maybe I shouldn't get so hung up on it, Felix. I do understand. And also, no, just to reiterate that point, Roald Dahl, mm. one of the really disturbing literary moments of mine was when I found his adult writing. Right. Yes, because okay. this is the same mind. And this is also a child's dilemma. Yeah. Because parents are people mm. and parents are grown-ups. Yep. And so they have their own grown-up lives. But yeah, I didn't yeah. want Roald Dahl, the man, the wonderful um, mind of mm. Roald Dahl, who gave me all these magnificent stories that were the framework of my childhood. I don't want him to be the sort of person who wrote some creepy, creepy, really grown-up stories. Right, yeah, I don't yeah. want him to be that person, but he is hmm. because people are complicated. I could, I could point out J.K. Rowling. I've decided not to read um, The Vacancy, is it called? The Oh, yes, The Casual Vacancy. The Casual Vacancy, sorry. Yeah. I'm not sure if I should read it or not. I'm still, I'm still hesitant on I've that one. i to say, J.K. Rowling, I have a lot of respect for her for the one thing that she did, yep. which was release the Robert Galbraith series. With okay. zero fanfare. Yeah. Now here's a little just snuck it in there. Here's a little adder girl kind of thing. It's a little mm. pet me up to everybody listening who wants to be a writer and sets the mark at J.K. Rowling. Please don't. Who else has sold a million books on their first novel? Nobody. Mm. It is. It was never done before. No, that's not a benchmark. To, it is not a benchmark to no, set yourself that, against. That'll just drive you mad and into depression. Come exactly. On. We, we, like Brian Wilson um, tried to he used the Beatles as his benchmark and oh, it drove him mad. Poor guy. You know, and exactly like he, that. he put out so much great, great. He's, he's a genius. And his work you know? should stand on its own. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, but those were the days. And mm. due to that competition in the sixties, that wonderful melting pot of ideas and chuck everything out the window and start mm. again great create new genres if you didn't have that level of competition to go against and constantly fall short of 
would you have achieved that level? That's of a good art? point. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So through that constant level of disappointment, you look behind yourself mm. and say, "Oh, do you know what? Actually, I did create an awful lot." Right. There's another writing tip for you, folks. Set yourself a word count every day. I know this is the most boring advice ever. Mine was 2,000 words a day. Okay. 2,000 words a day or go home. 2,000 words a day and then when I met it, I would constantly increase it. If I failed to meet it, I would beat myself up. Mm-hmm. Not literally. But I would feel bad about it. But it was only in through that incremental disappointment that I would turn around and say, oh, well, gee, look at that. I've done it. So only by setting the bar very high and beating myself up when I didn't meet it did I complete to what degree do you beat yourself up, though? I mean, there's, I guess there is a, a line that we cross. Like, if, if you were constantly not meeting it, no matter how hard you tried, or are you, trying, are you saying that you will? You will um, eventually, inevitably, you will meet that, that goal as yes. long as you don't lower the goal and you keep trying to... Do you ever lower that goal? If you didn't meet 2,000, the next day do you make it 1,900? No, I just accept that I fail for the day. You fail for the day, and then you try to meet two thousand. <laughs> how do you right. how do you accept that though, Felix? Because there's a lot of people that are that would it would just drive them into deep depression. If That's they... true, and you've got to be mindful that uh, as an artist, everybody's being stalked by the black dog. Mm. You just got to keep moving ahead. Artists naturally gravitate towards that. Yes, Nate. and Nate, I was trying to make a point earlier that I've just remembered it now. Yep. The oatmeal. He describes yes, art okay. as when you are creating art, you are exhaling you must also inhale. Mm. And that inhaling is art. Read. Go to galleries. Listen to music. Feed your muse. If you're stuck, don't despair. Go out and consume other people's art. Right. And then when your muse speaks to you, return. <laughs> Love it. Actually, that's a, that's a great way to, to bring everything to a close, I think. That's some perfect advice. But just before we do close, just I, I do want to make sure that we have... Okay, so before we close, tell us exactly, make it as easy as possible for people to know exactly how they can discover you and discover your works, um, you know, support you, share you, so on and so on. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for the support you give me and every other artist. Without your support, we simply could not continue felixlong.co.uk please check me out I'll be putting up the maths test my latest short story which was written on the single the simple premise how scary can I make a maths test <laughs> that'll be that. up shortly uh, my um, first work to conquer heaven is going to be free on Amazon on the 19th of June Ooh, all right Sofra Sini is going to 99 cents on Amazon the same t- time period 19th of June for a week you can also find Sofra Sini in app form on the App Store or Google Play. Sofra Sini is spelt S-O-P-H-R-O-S-Y-N-E. There you go, I got it. <laughs> and Habnab, please sign up on my website. I've got a, the first chapter of Habnab up there. Artemis Fowl for adults. Keep an eye out. So thank you very much, Nate. Thank you very much, Maria, for inviting me here to Tonic Pop today. Thank you, Felix. Thanks for being here. Tune in, guys, uh, next time and make sure you share this. Share the heck out of it. Let's continue to support our local artists um, and share them not just with ourselves and our immediate circles, but beyond because the rest of Australia needs to know how good and how thick and how plump we have, um, you know, our, our, our base of artists are here in this beautiful city. So let's do it. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Nate Hammond. This has been Tonic Pop.